0: Good morning, and welcome to the River of Life Sunday Morning Podcast. If you're local to Wakulla County, we'd love to see you and worship with you in person. Our service times are Sunday at eight thirty and ten thirty a.m. God bless you, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, good evening, everyone. If we can go ahead and find our place. We'll go ahead and get started. As always, I promise to get you out of here with plenty of time to uh, to fellowship. All right, tonight we are turning to a new chapter in the book of Romans, Romans chapter eight. And uh, we're going to look at just one verse, and that is verse one. And the title of our lesson tonight is "No Condemnation." Now, many people, I've said this before, and you've heard me say this. If you put me on a desert island, you said I could have one book, I'd take the Bible. If you said I could only have one book out of the Bible, I would take Romans. And if you said I could only have one chapter out of Romans, I would choose this chapter. There is nothing like this chapter. Um, and I'm not the only one. J.I. Packer says Romans is the is the uh, high peak, uh, it's the greatest book of the Bible. And, and Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in that book. I just want to read a few verses to you, and I'm gonna, and we'll, we'll kind of get further into it uh, since we're not going very far tonight. But I want to read a few verses to you. These verses are all familiar. If you've been in church or you've been in Bible study, if you, you've been around any kind of preaching or teaching for a while, you've heard these verses. Verses like this, "...for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit." All who are led by the uh, Spirit of God are sons of God. Or how about this one? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Or how about this one? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Or how about this one? If God be for us, who can be against us? right? Or how about this one? For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor uh, uh, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's all Romans 8. And that's just a few. I mean, I could, the, the, the chapter is absolutely, uh, absolutely incredible. Now, this is our ninth week since we've started back on Wednesday night. Uh, I spent four weeks in chapter six. I spent uh, four weeks or one month in chapter seven. When I first taught this uh, through Romans nine years ago, I spent four months in this chapter. And it's not because it's longer than any other chapter. It's just every verse is just unbelievable. I mean, you just can't get biased. Like you just, you can't cover five verses. You can only cover one or two. Now, I don't think we'll be in here four months. I'm not going to go into it at the depth that I did uh, in my study nine years ago. But I want to encourage you, listen, nine years ago in 2012, I went through this. I don't know when we'll go through it again. For some of you, this may be the last time you study Romans 9. Or it may be years before you get another. I'm sorry, Romans eight. It may be years. So my, I want to encourage you to savor it. It's that good. Treasure it. Don't don't think, man. I wish he'd move on. Man, there is so much here. Enjoy it, because we don't know if we'll ever get a chance to get back to the, the again what I consider the greatest chapter in the Bible. I want to start tonight with just a real short overview, and then we'll get into uh, verse one. Now we just came out of chapter seven, and the the uh, the focus in chapter seven was the law, okay. Um, And the idea in chapter seven that Paul was trying to get across to us is that the law is is unable to save or sanctify. Okay, you remember what we talked about? Um, If if I look a little stiff tonight, um, I had a fall last week. I was coming out of a doctor's office and and slipped going through us anyway, fell, cracked a rib, and, and it's just been a long, a long week. But I went in Friday and they x-rayed me. And the x-ray says, well, you got a cracked rib. But see, the x-ray could tell me the problem, but it couldn't do anything about the problem. That's what the law does. The law says you're a sinner. The law, the Bible says, came to make sin exceedingly sinful. But the law can't do anything to save you or make you a better person. It just shows you the problem that 's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter uh, seven. I, this was brought to me this week i 've been watching uh, some youtube um, videos and and i don 't have cable or anything, so we tend to watch a lot of YouTube and I watch a lot of preaching and things like that and um, I, I was I found this uh, website or, or or this channel or whatever they call it on there called uh, uh one for Israel and they They have these interviews with Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And it's just absolutely fascinating to listen to these people who grew up under the law. They went to Hebrew school. They were taught about the holidays. They were were taught the Talmud. They were taught the Torah. They were were taught all this stuff. And I'm telling you too, every single one of them said the same thing. They, They knew all about God, but they didn't know God. They said it over and over again. In fact, it's funny, many of them said they were kind of uh, jealous of Christians. They would hear these Gentile Christians talk about talking to God and praying to God and, and, and loving God, and they would think, well, how can these guys know God better than we do? We're the Jews. But, but they didn't know Him. The law can't, there's no relationship there. It can show you the problem, but it can't help you. Now, here in chapter 8, Paul's going to flip the script. And he says, there is a power that is able to save and able to sanctify. There is a power that's able to change you from the inside out, and that power is the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go back and count, in chapter 7, the law was mentioned. If you just count the word law, it was mentioned 23 times. If you look at uh, spirit, the word spirit in chapter 8 it's mentioned 21 times. So it's obvious that the the spirit is as important to chapter 8 as the law was, to to chapter 7. Yet this chapter is not about the Holy Spirit. It it, it doesn't really talk about the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is. It doesn't try to develop a theology of the Holy Spirit. It's not really about about that at all. This chapter is about the security of the believer. This chapter is, is all about you knowing that you're saved. It's the work that the Holy Spirit does in us to create that security and create that Assurance, and he's going to begin that work uh, in in verse one. In fact, look at the first verse and the last verse. This is the first verse of the chapter and the last verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come will be, ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, all love. That's this chapter is trying to build security in you, so you will know that you are a a believer. So this is what this chapter is about. It's about assurance. Charles Hodge said this, Paul's theme here is the security of believers. The whole chapter is a series of arguments beautifully arranged in support of this one point. We see it in the very first verse. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. They shall never be condemned and they shall never uh, perish. Now, he just mentioned the first verse. So we're going to go ahead and read it, and, and this verse is one of the most loved and one of the most glorious verses in the entire Bible. It's a simple verse. Um, we all know what it says, but it deserves its own uh, lesson. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, i got to be honest with you, as a teacher when I come to a verse or I come to a passage, I, I want to try to explain it. But does that really need much explanation? I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, right? At the same time, as a teacher, who wants to leave that? Right? I mean, look at it. It's Man, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't know if I can do a lot. But if, if, if in some little way... When you leave here tonight, you understand this verse or you feel this verse more than you did when you came in, um, then, then I'll have done my job. But, but I'm going to tell you, it, it, it doesn't need a lot. It, it really stands on its own. But what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to look, and I don't often do this. I don't often just do a word study. Uh, but I'm going to look at four words in this verse. And those are the four words, therefore now no condemnation. And we're going to look at those four words and see what we can uh, learn. The first word I want to look at is the word condemnation. Um, the word condemnation is the Greek word katakrima. Paul uses it three times in Romans, only three times. The first time we use it, he uses it in Romans 5:16. And this is, if you go back to chapter 5, this is where he's talking about what Adam did and how it affected humanity, and what Christ did, and how it affected humanity. And this is what he says about Adam. For the judgment following one trespass, he's talking about Adam's sin, brought condemnation. There's that Greek word, katakrima. Now, two verses later, in verse 18, he, he basically repeats himself. He says, therefore, as one sin, talking about the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. There's that exact same word, the Greek catacrima, And then you get up to chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, same exact word, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does condemnation mean? What does condemnation mean? This, this is one of the reasons that Bible studies are so valuable. Because you got to understand language changes over time, Right? What what words meant, it, first of all, it's gone from Greek to, to, to Old English and then from Old King James English and New English and word meanings change and all that. So if I just went out to the American, one of the dictionaries of the English language and I said, what does condemnation mean? You'll see a couple of different uh, 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 descriptions of it. The first one I looked up, it said, to declare something to be reprehensible, wrong or evil to pronounce guilty, to judge guilty, to convict. Now, if you look at those two words, it all has to do with your words, right? Does everybody see that? To declare something, to pronounce something, to, to accuse or to blame. And, that, and that's pretty much what we think when we think about condemnation. Somebody's condemning me. Somebody's talking about me. Somebody's accusing me. Somebody is blaming me. In fact, many of you, if you think about feeling condemned... You think about being accused, right? Does that make sense to everybody? We, we, that, that's where we put the emphasis on in, as Americans in, in the English language. But that's not what the Greek means at all. It's not what the Greek meant at all that Paul used. Leon Morris said this, Condemnation is a forensic or legal term which includes both the sentence and the execution of the sentence. I want to show you, I want to help you live. For those of you that want to study the Bible, listen, I'm not, a Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not that smart. I didn't go to seminary. I hadn't been to school. But the Internet is a, listen, the Internet's got a lot of trash. But the Internet has also got some wonderful things. There is a, a, a website out there called BibleHub.com. And there's also an app for your smartphone if you want to. And, and I've got both of those. And anytime you want to look up a verse and see what the verse said in the Greek and what the Greek meant, it's really easy to do. So here's a little video I just made for you. I'm going to go out to BibleHub.com and just type it in. And I'm just going to type in Romans 8.1. That's all I'm going to do. And it automatically brings up all the different parallel translations. And up top, there's a little tab called Lexicon. And if you go to that, it'll show you what the English word is, what the Greek word is, and it'll show you all the translations. And I don't know if y'all can see that. You probably can't. But the Greek word condemnation means penalty. Not blame, not accusation. It actually means penalty. You see, in the Greek, condemnation has it? it kind of, it's the whole gamut, right? You've been accused of a crime, you've been found guilty of the crime, and now you've been assigned a penalty for that crime. It's not just the accusation, okay? It's more than that. See, this is this is courtroom language. This is again, somebody's been accused. They've been they've been judged and found guilty, and now they've been they've been sentenced. So when you talk about condemned, that's what Paul is talking about. By the way, just so you'll know, there is another Greek word that means to blame. For example, in Galatians 2.11, Paul said this, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The better translation there would be he stood accused or he stood blamed. That's a completely different Greek word. But that's not the word that Paul uses in, in Romans eight one. He uses the one that means penalty. So what's Paul's point in Romans 8.1? His point is there is no punishment for the Christian. Get that down deep in you. There is no punishment for the Christian. You see, we're under, as unbelievers, we've been accused of sin. We've been found guilty of sin. We are under the penalty of the wrath of God, but no more. It's all been covered up by the cross because I'm united to Jesus Christ in faith. There is no condemnation. There's no accusation. There's no there's no uh, uh, pronouncement of guilt. And there is absolutely no punishment. I was thinking this week, I was watching something. It was something on, on Catholicism. And, you know, Catholicism has this teaching of purgatory. That when you die, you have to go to this place and kind of suffer for a while. Listen, that is wrong on so many levels. Number one, it's not even in the Bible. Okay. Number two, it's anti-Bible because Paul says there is no punishment. There is no condemnation for the Christian. Okay. So that's, it's actually anti-Bible. And so it's just, it's just wrong. Paul says no punishment, no penalty for, for our sin because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, you can see right off the bat where this is going to start to go at the end of this chapter, right? Paul's going to say, what do we say to these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? Who, who can bring a charge against me? God is the one that justifies me. Who can separate me from the love of God? Nobody. No thing. I, I, I am in Him. There is nothing that anyone will ever hold against me. Listen, this is such a great truth. But as I began to study it and and began to put this together, I thought, you know, I can't just leave this. I want to show you another example of this in the Bible. This is found in the Gospels. Everybody knows this story. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And we all know the story, right? There's these Jewish religious guys. The Bible calls them scribes and Pharisees. And they they find this man and woman in the very act of adultery. I mean, the Bible, literally the language used says they pulled them out of the bed. So there was no doubt that they were guilty. And they bring this woman before Jesus. Now, here's the thing. These men, they didn't care about the law. They could have cared less about the law. They certainly didn't care about the woman. And and where's the man? They didn't bring him. All they cared about was trapping Jesus. That's all they cared about. She was just a pawn. So they take this woman caught in adultery, and they bring her before Jesus, and they say to him, Teacher, We've caught this woman. She's absolutely guilty. The law of Moses said that she is to be stoned. What do you say? Now, this puts Jesus between a rock and a hard place, right? Because if he says, don't stone her, well, then they're going to say, well, look at him. He doesn't, he doesn't honor Moses. He doesn't believe in the law, right? And, and, and he's a false prophet. But if he says, yeah, go ahead and stone her, then what about mercy that he's been preaching and forgiveness? And, I mean, he's in a a pickle, right? Listen, you cannot read this book, and you can't read stories like this without knowing this man is different. Nobody's like this man. I mean, what is he going to do? Now, we all, listen, we've heard this story so many times that we know what he's going to say. What what he does, he turns around, they've put it all on him, and he just flips it and puts it back on them and says, okay, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. And the Bible tells us that from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they walked away. I mean, it's incredible, man. Who who, who would have ever come up with that except the Son of God? But what I want you to see is the next part. Jesus stood up and he said to her, it's just him and her, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you. That's the exact same word that Paul uses in the Greek. She says, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus, again, it's the exact same word. And Jesus is not asking her, has no one accused you? Has no one blamed you? That's not what he's asking. Obviously, she's been accused, right? A group of men stood around her with rocks in their hands. That was obvious. He's not saying, has no one accused you? What he's saying, has no one carried out the penalty? You get me? See, he's not just talking about blame and accusation. He's literally saying, has no one carried out the penalty? And she's basically saying, no, Lord, no one has carried out the sentence of stoning me. And Jesus Jesus basically says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I carry out the sentence that you deserve. Now go. Go and sin no more. Listen, when you see it that way, do you understand that every single one of us or the woman caught in adultery? Every single day that you're an unbeliever, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Every single day you deserve the penalty of death. And every single hour and every single day, Jesus says, one more day, neither do I sentence you this day. Neither do I sentence you on this day. And he gives you one more day and one more day. And one more decade, over and over and over and over again. It's an incredible thing. Second word I want to look at tonight is the word "no." I learned something a while back about the Greek language. Um, again, I'm not—I don't know a lot about Greek, but I've learned a, a couple of things over over the years. I, something about the Greek is very interesting. You know, English—if we mix our words up, it, it means it's—it's it's really. It's really important in English that your words all are in the right place, right? But Greek's not like that. Greek, you can actually mix words up in order to emphasize things. So, for example, in Greek, you could say, I feel bad, or you could say, bad I feel. And they're both perf- perfectly legitimate. You move, if you want to emphasize a word, you move it to the front of the sentence, So if you you want to emphasize I, you put it first. If you want to emphasize bad, you can put it first. Now, again, it sounds really weird to us in English, but in Greek, that's perfectly legitimate to do. Now, in English, this is the translation, and and we all know it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you go look at the original Greek, guess what the first word is? No. The first word in there is no. No. You see if you if you tried what what Paul's trying to say is something like this there is nothing there is not one speck there is not one dot there is not one whit of condemnation he's emphasizing that word no there's none not a little bit of punishment not a just not a smidgen of punishment there is no punishment no penalty for those who are in Christ Jesus the Bible teaches us that one day, every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. at 2 Corinthians 5. And Jesus Christ himself will be our judge on that day. John chapter 5. Everybody, what is it that determines whether you receive the penalty of the wrath of God or not? Well, Jesus told us in John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the same word. You're not punished. There is no penalty. But whoever does not believe, you've been sentenced already. It's just a matter of time. You're on death row. You're just waiting for, it to, for, the, for the man to walk down the aisle and, and, and come get you. See, it's, that's the thing that's going to set us apart. Once again, as unbelievers, you've been accused. The wages of sin is death. You've been found guilty. The penalty has been assigned. But for Christians, it's all gone. There's not a smidgen, not a whit, not a speck of, of penalty left for you and I. The third word I want to look at tonight is the word therefore. There's an old Bible study thing somebody told me a long time ago. If you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? Because therefore is a connecting word, right? If I was to say, if I was to call you up and say, hey, I'm going to be home on Friday. Therefore, if you need me to drive you to Walmart... Let me know, right? I'm, I'm saying this is true, therefore, this is true. Well, Paul says right here, there is therefore. So he's connecting to something previous. Now, I want to remind you guys of something I brought up a few weeks ago. In the original Bible, there was no chapters and verses, okay? Everybody, I hope, knows that. In fact, the first Bible that had chapters and verses in it, the first English Bible... Uh, was the Geneva Bible in fifteen sixty so uh, two thousand years since the New Testament was written for three quarters of it there were it was just it was just line after line after line, no chapters, no verses until somebody and you can go google it. I forget who the guy was and and uh, all of that but but somebody went in and broke it up into chapters and broke it up into verses and it, and it 's convenient but it 's not an inspired thing you You understand that. It was just a man thing to make things uh, convenient. I'm going to give you, a, I'm gonna give you a, a few quotes from one of my favorite preachers, dead preachers, is C.H. Uh, Spurgeon. He said this, You are well aware, dear friends, that the division into chapters has only been made for convenience sake and is not a matter of inspired arrangement. I may add that it has been clumsily made and not with careful thought, but as roughly as if a woodman had taken an axe and chopped the book to pieces in a hurry. So he wasn't a big fan of how this person had broke up. And and he's right. And you got to be really careful of that because when we turn over sometimes to a new chapter, in our mind we think, well, this is a new subject, right? This is a new thought. But that chapter wasn't there in the original. And, And if that person didn't put that at the right place, it can be kind of misleading. So if we look at our modern Bible, you've got Romans 7, and then you've got a chapter division, and then you've got Romans 8. But that division wasn't there in the original. Romans 7 and Romans 8 didn't exist in the original. All that existed was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And this is what he said at the end of 7 and the beginning of 8. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But there is therefore now no condemnation. For them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you get... For those of you that were here for chapter 7, do you understand what incredible, wonderful news this is for you and I? Paul Paul in chapter 7 said this, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I, I want to do the right thing. I, I want to serve the law of God with my mind, but I, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. But there is not a whit of condemnation for that man or that woman who is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, yeah, but, but in me, I, I know in my flesh nothing good dwells. I, I want to do good, but how to do it, I can't seem to find out. Yeah, but there's not one speck of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another quote from Spurgeon. I once heard a friend say, I've got out of the 7th of Romans into the 8th. Nonsense. There is no getting out of one into the other, for they are one. Since my conversion, I have never known what it is to be out of the 7th of Romans, nor out of the 8th of Romans either. I have struggled against inward sin and rejoiced in justification at the same time. The same apostle, after having said, So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin goes on to say, without any break, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, I mess up. I sin. There are things that I I know I shouldn't do, and I end up doing them, and I don't know why I'm doing them. I don't understand it. And there's other things that I know I need to do, and I can't make myself do it. I am the guy in Romans 7, and I am so glad that I can turn that page and see that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What an incredible verse. The fourth word I want to look at is the word now. I mentioned earlier that one day we're all going to stand before, at some point in the future, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Paul does, it, Paul's not talking about then. Paul says there is therefore what? Now. That's a present tense word. He said there's no punishment now. There's no penalty now. See, it's it's more than about being acquitted at some place in the future. Once again, C.H. Spurgeon. The fact is believers are in... Listen, I love this quote. Believers are in a state of conflict, but not in a state of condemnation. Man, I like that. Believers are in a state of conflict, but not in a state of of condemnation. At the very time when the conflict is hottest, the believer is still justified when the believer has to do his utmost even to hold his ground, when he feels that he cannot advance an inch without fighting for it, when he has to cry out in agony of his spirit because of the vehemence of temptation, he can still lay his hand on the Word of God and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Man, we ought to, every one of us ought to have this verse Written and tucked in. If we if we did the Jewish thing where they wrote, remember they put the little boxes on their head. This would be a good one to have to walk around every day and remind yourself, remind yourself, there's no condemnation because I'm in I'm in Christ. I want to summarize this tonight. Years ago, I heard a pastor use a story to illustrate Romans eight one, and the story he used was about a guy who was on death row. So there's this guy that's on death row and he's committed this crime and, and he's absolutely guilty. He knows he's guilty. He's even confessed his guilt. He, he was caught red handed and he was sent to death row. And he, so he sits there and he's, he's been sitting there for a while and, and the appeal process is going through and he's expecting, you know, uh, any moment they're going to come and get him right. They, they've, I think in the story they had even signed his death warrant and, and all of this kind of stuff, and then one day he's sitting in his, his jail cell, and he hears the the keys go in the lock, and he hears the, the the creaking of the door, and he and and somebody walks down, and he can hear them coming, and the and the you know they're they're coming, and they come down, and they walk around. and He's thinking, this is it, this this is finally it. They they've come to take me and 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 take me to the to the gas chamber or whatever it was. But the guy comes up and says, "Man, I got some incredible news for you." Uh, you've been set free. And I don't remember in the story if the governor pardoned him or if they found some technicality or whatever, but here's this person who was expecting to die, and literally he goes completely free. Now, the pastor that was telling this story said this, each one of us was on death row. We are guilty, and Christ has opened the door of our cell and said you are no longer a condemned man or a condemned woman. But the news that Christ gives us is far greater. We're not only rescued from death, but we are rescued from an eternity of torment. Now, I remember hearing that story, and and something just didn't quite sit right with me when I heard that story. Nothing necessarily wrong with what he said, but I just didn't feel like it was a a very good analogy. I, I just didn't feel like that story fit what really happens to a Christian. So I begin to think about that and ask, why why would a Christian be different? Why would that not be a good analogy, if you will, uh, of a Christian? And I I think here's why. You see, the man on death row is guilty. He knows he's guilty. And even though he's been let out, he's got to lay his head down every night knowing what he did. Because after all, his crimes were not paid for. And by the way, what about his victims? Where's justice for them? He just got let off scot-free. See, that just didn't fit right. See, Christian is, the Christian is different because, guys, we're not just let off the hook. He doesn't just say, hey, man, I'm just going to sweep your sin under the rug right here. Just Let's just forget about that. Come on in to heaven. That's not the way it works. I'll give you three things. Number one, we are forgiven and our sins are forgotten. Psalms 103, 12 said this, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far He removes our transgressions from us. In New Testament, Hebrews 10, 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So God is not sitting there with a list holding it over our head to, to accuse us at any moment. You remember when you did that? You remember that now? God doesn't, God doesn't work that way. We are forgiven and our sins are remembered no more. Number two, and probably most important, our guilt is removed because our sins are paid for. See, we didn't get off scot-free. He took our sins in His body on that tree. He paid our debt. He paid the penalty that was due for us. Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Second Corinthians five twenty one For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In him. And what's the result of that? Because he has paid that penalty, we are forgiven and our sins are forgotten. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no longer a penalty to be paid for our sins. By the way, you understand, please, that he paid for the sins you've already committed and he's paid for the sins that you will commit. He's paid for them all. They're all covered, they're all under the blood of Jesus. If, if, You are united to Him in faith. Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation, and the no is emphatic. None whatsoever. There is no condemnation coming from the law. There is no condemnation coming from any remaining inward corruption that we have in us. Satan cannot condemn us. Human beings cannot condemn us. And listen, certainly not from God. Certainly not from God, who gave his one and only son to pay my sin debt. God's not going to turn around and condemn me. He's not going to do that. Now, next week, we're going to talk about, with all that said, I can guarantee you somebody here is feeling accused. See, we, that's where we struggle as Christians because we know we're not perfect. We know we got a lot of problems. We know we're, we're the person in Romans 7. That's what's so beautiful about this because Paul turns the page and says, there is no, no condemnation, but I guarantee you, the vast majority of you here feel, feel, every time you mess up, you feel that accusation. And a lot of you, the sad thing is, is you think that's coming from God. You think that somehow God's holding that over your head. That's not true at all. God would never do that. Now, next week, we're going to see where those accusations come from and what God has done for us to uh, deal with them. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. Uh, We thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you didn't end Romans in chapter 7. You didn't end with a divided, struggling, conflicted person. But God, you gave us Romans 8. And right out of the gate, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here tonight that is, is dealing with accusations, is, is dealing with, with uh, uh, condemnation, they're just dealing with feeling that, that all the time, Lord. I pray that somehow, if they truly are in Christ, that you will set them free. Use this verse, Holy Spirit. Do what you do. Create security. Create assurance in their heart. Let them know the only way, in a way that only you can, that they are free from all that, that they don't have to worry about it anymore. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for this wonderful word. And we look forward to next week when we'll see exactly what God does to make sure that the accusations are no more. In Jesus' name, amen.